Welcome to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast, where you get help and guidance through the chaos of parenting a child with anxiety or OCD. This show is for educational purposes and is not intended to replace the guidance of a qualified professional. Here's your host, child therapist, Natasha Daniels. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. Today is such a good topic. I can't believe I haven't talked about this before. I've done, this is what, two episode 200 and I don't even know that it's not in front of me, 216, I think. And no, I'm wrong, 226. And I have not talked about how anxiety and OCD show up in sports, which is a really important topic because I've had that happen a lot of times in my practice. And I'm sure you've experienced this a lot, probably in your house, that anxiety and OCD like to glum onto anything our kids enjoy. And that includes their their sports, their basketball, their soccer, their swimming, their track, or their artistic abilities, like their dance competitions, or their cheer competitions, or their choir concerts, or their art exhibits. I'm just, I'm trying to think of everything under the sun. When our kids have passions, and they have to show up, and it's competitive, maybe they have to perform whether it is athletically or even in a skill, anxiety and OCD show up too. And that is a bummer. And a lot of times our kids wind up quitting because they can't handle the anxiety and OCD that comes with it. And that is why I was very excited when Callie Werner put out a book called Anxious Annie. And it was all about you know, how anxiety shows up with sports. But even further, it was very cool to invite her onto the show and be able to talk to her in general terms. What does it look like? How does it show up in different ways for different people? And then what are you supposed to do about it? And she's a good person to talk to because she is an athlete. She actually qualified and competed in the U.S. Olympic Trials Marathon in 2020, which I think is really impressive. But she's also a clinician who specializes in OCD. And she's also getting her doctorate and doing research, focusing on competitive athletes with debilitating anxiety and talking about how that impacts their performance. So she was a perfect person to have come on. And she was full of information and insight, things that I hadn't really even thought of before because I'm not an athlete. They're shocker. But my kids aren't even athletes. They don't play sports. They don't do really anything competitive. And so it was interesting to talk to her and see how it kind of can show up. Before we get started, I do want to thank NoCD for sponsoring this episode. They provide online OCD therapy in the US, UK, Australia, and Canada, and they are getting more and more clinicians every single day. So if you feel like I can't find an OCD therapist in my area, you want to call NoCD, you can schedule a free 15-minute consultation not only to see if they're a right fit for you and your child, but to see if they have maybe some new OCD therapists in your community because I'm seeing more and more added every day. So you can go to treatmyocd.com. That's treatmyocd.com. And I'll leave a link in the show notes. So without further ado, let's talk to Callie and talk about how anxiety shows up and OCD shows up, shows up in different ways for our kids in sports. Well, I want to welcome Callie to the show. Thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. This is such a good topic because I have never covered sports anxiety before, and yet it's like such a common anxiety. 
So we're going to dive into this and it's really like not in my wheelhouse, although I deal with anxiety. So you're a perfect person to come on and flush this out for us. Before we dive in, can you tell people a little bit about you? Absolutely. So I am Callie Werner. I work at McLean OCD Institute and I do family therapy, outpatient and adolescent therapy in our intensive uh, or AIOP. And so we work with kids of, you know, adolescents of all ages and it's all virtual right now. And and it was a neat way to do that once COVID started, but uh, recently also started my PhD program with Baylor University and I'm a distance runner. I ran in the Olympic trials in 2020 and really to do it again. So we'll see this, this next time around. Yeah. It was such a cool experience. But then the last thing I, my children's book, anxious Annie recently came out and it's my personal story written through a child's eye. I love it. I did not know that about you. I didn't do enough research. That's fascinating. So you're a perfect person to talk about this because I'm sure you've had your own anxiety show up. What was the impetus of you writing anxious Annie? I was going to ask you that at the end, but now I'm like really curious. Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. I actually started struggling with OCD from the age of three or four and the symptoms just kind of progressed over time. Of course, in times of stress, symptoms would wax and wane. But then when I got to college as a distance runner was trying to compete to race and nationals, my symptoms completely exasperated and I still hadn't been diagnosed. So I really had no idea what was going on, struggled a lot, luckily had a very loving support system uh, by my side through most of this process and didn't receive diagnosis until I was 21. Exposure response prevention changed my life, which is what got me to being a clinician myself, um, an advocate within the field. But I, I think looking back at my younger years of competing, there was this special component of just having love around me and people reminding me that like running wasn't my full identity, which is that first children's book that I wrote. And, and, you know, who knows, maybe later on I'll do the the teen version, which dives more into the OCD component, but it, it, this book itself just talks all about like, there's more to you than just this one event or this, you know, next race, next competition. And that uh, you're loved despite your accomplishments or, or non-accomplishments. Yeah. And it is a perfect book for kids who have anxiety performing in any capacity, you know, cause it's a good story that talks about performance anxiety or, you know, not getting perfectionism. Like I can see it really helping for a lot of different, different issues. So I do feel like a teen one is much needed. <laughs> so yeah. we'll have to stay tuned, write it and come back on and we'll talk about that. Yeah. No, noted. <laughs> yeah. So let's talk about how anxiety and OCD, and we can talk about both, how they show up when people are, and we'll talk specifically about sports, but really, I mean, a parent can, or a person listening to this for themselves can replace that with any performance type of anxiety, whether it's creative arts or music, really just performing, you're performing athletically. So how does that show up typically? So in the athletic realm for athletes, there's a lot of different superstitious or ritualistic behaviors that they can engage in around the time of their sport. And a lot of the research shows that individuals with lower perception of control tend to have uh, more superstitious behaviors. And also individuals that are rated higher on an anxiety scale tend to find these superstitious behaviors 
less helpful. This was a, a research study that I just did on collegiate athletes with a sports psychologist friend of mine. And so these behaviors can look like, I'll, I'll use my personal example, tying and retying my shoe over and over before a race, because my mind mentally could not handle the capacity of thinking, well, what if you don't win? Or what, like, what does that mean? For some reason, my, my brain just couldn't handle it. So it would tie all this attention to these other things of tie your shoe over and over until it feels just right, or make sure you go touch the starting line three times. Uh, make sure you didn't offend anybody that's in your family here watching the race. And so I would go down the starting line and say, I'm sorry to each family member for in case I did something wrong at some point with a little bit of scrupulosity sprinkled in there. I think it depends on the athlete for sure. And the subtype of OCD or the perfectionism, you know, I've seen a lot of athletes get stuck packing when they're going to some type of competition, trying to get their suitcase as tidy as possible. And a lot of the time, I, I really do believe that the fear is if I don't do this, then my performance won't go well. It is the common theme, but you're right in the fact that it's not just athletics that this can happen in. It can also tie over into other realms of life. So if I wasn't in cross country or track season for me, all this anxiety would pick up around a big test that I had. So I I'd have to, you know, reread the sentence over and over until it felt just right or circle and then erase and then circle the response again. And adults can take this into the, the work world too, with big presentations or just new life events. Yeah. You know, that's interesting because it's the OCD component of athletics and the anxiety are somewhat different in a way, the way it shows up. And I feel like almost like anxiety, like sports is like prime for OCD to take advantage because there are all these, like, I actually had a dad once say to me, so tell me what the difference is between OCD and someone who's playing baseball and they have their lucky hat or their lucky glove, or they have to wear their, I don't know, underwear, like this particular underwear, you know, which is like accepted and promoted really. And I love that question. It's probably one of my favorites. There, there is a difference. So there's athletes that might, you know, wear this same pair of lucky socks before every time they go and compete. And it does give them the sense of confidence of like, these are my lucky socks and I believe in this and it's valued for them. But then there's those athletes with like the genetic component of OCD where it's not just the lucky socks anymore. It's the lucky socks and the ponytail holder that you have to have, or the door that you have to slam four times and it just grows and exasperates. But, but I do think there is that component for some people like these, these behaviors, if they are not excessive, meaning, you know, DSM five says more than an hour out of your day, whether you're thinking about it mentally or um, engaging in these physical things, it wouldn't be harmful if it's just that one thing, but it's the preventative work that you have to do to make sure that that's not growing and getting bad because then if, if you do have OCD, it can take over your life. Yeah. And I, you're making a really good distinction is that you know, if you have that genetic predisposition to OCD, you know, yeah. Somebody might be like these lucky socks. They feel good. I wear them, whatever. If I, you know, for some reason don't have them. Yeah. I'm not going to stress about it or whatever. It's just kind of a tradition or a ritual, but not in the OCD way. But when you have OCD, you know, and you have those themes that can pop up, it can be debilitating. So I can hear some people in my head saying, well, you know, and they wouldn't call them compulsions, but like my lucky habits or my routine that makes me a really good athlete, it's under an hour a day but it's compulsive. So how can someone tell the difference when it's pretty compulsive, but they have to do it that every hour they have to do it once a day in order to feel like they're going to be a good athlete, whatever that may be. Yeah. I would ask them specifically, like, 
if this were impossible, like if you could not do this today, would you still be able to go out there and enjoy your sport? Would you still be able to go out there confidently? And if the answer is no, then candidly, I think you have some work to do, right? This is something that's controlling you and you're not controlling it. So there's some more research on how we should, and there's not a lot on it. And so I can't speak to it too much, but how we should be moving away from superstitious behaviors and instead going towards pre-performance routines, which I can identify the difference is that pre-performance routines have some type of purpose. So for example, wearing your lucky socks do not have any purpose other than that superstitious belief that this is going to help me, but stretching in a certain way before a competition that, you know, loosens you up actually has a lot of benefit, right? And so that's a pre-performance routine. Another pre-performance routine could be eating a meal that, you know, sits well on your stomach the morning of competition. You wouldn't want to try something random and new, especially if you're a distance runner, you can feel those things a lot more. And so that also has a purpose versus tapping the starting line four or five times just to get that just right feeling. And so if you can tie that energy into something else that has more purpose, then there could be benefit in it. Yeah. And I do, I know there's one member of my community who, you know, who's, who has a child who's struggling. I think he's a runner and has to do a lot of compulsive things, but it can be construed as purposeful in the sense that, you know, I'm going to work out and it's going to make me a better runner or I'm going to do this and it's going to make me a better blah, blah, blah. But then you develop these compulsions around your workout and compulsions around how you do it and tie it to your success. And it seems like a slippery slope for a lot of athletes. Yeah. Yeah. I, there was a time I would have to make my mileage round out to an even number. And so someone could argue, well, instead of running 5.5 miles for your, your run that day, you ran six. Isn't that a good thing? You did more mileage. And if you're looking at everything in in the grand scheme, I would say, okay, the amount of times I had to round up to this next mileage, it could lead to a lot of things. It could lead to for sure burnout, right? Like the, the amount of extra energy it would always take to make sure that it's right. Or I wanted to be done, but I couldn't, or I physically felt like I couldn't because something bad would happen if I didn't, but then overtraining can become a component that ties into OCD as well. And so maybe for the short term, it it could benefit you to this small extent, but we know that OCD tends to grow with stress. And so it usually will only get worse. And so the pros and cons, uh, it seems like that would be more of a con in the long term. Yeah. And I think OCD is so sneaky because it'll be like, yeah, it's, it'll just be like, you want to be a good runner. You know, you better do this every day. Don't miss a day. You better do this, this, and this, you know, And and what it's doing is it's robbing to me. It seems like it's robbing you of the thing that you're passionate and that you love is what OCD likes to do. It likes to take what you love and make it its own. And that's not fair. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where I was at, at that point of, of diagnosis, I dreaded and resented running and could not wait to be done with it because of the amount of compulsions that came with it. And then ERP gave me the freedom. And to this day, I still am so proud of the things that I can do before a big race that I wasn't able to do before. Right. Uh, maybe I offended that person. I'm still going to go run. And of course I, I still have this little voice in the back of my head that says, Callie, but what if, what if you're not apologizing is going to negatively impact your race? What if you're thinking about it the whole time, but to be able to go out there and then compete is so empowering to not give in to that OCD monster. <laughs> yeah. I love that. You've made so much, I love it because I think, you know, you, 
you have the expertise as an athlete and you have the expertise as a clinician, which is amazing to, to be able to talk to someone who, who gets it clinically, but also gets it as a person who is an athlete and who struggled with these things. Because I think sometimes people will say, well, it's rational, you know, an OCD will use this rational aspect where, well, I'm not tapping things or I'm not doing things that are unrelated. And so it'll, it'll hide under that, I think, or it'll touch other things that are so far away from your performance that you think it's almost unrelated. Well, I have to eat this, you know, and it's, it doesn't even seem related, which can be a struggle. Yeah. One of my favorite examples to give is is someone that might have contamination OCD. They'll, they'll say, maybe I'll ask them to do an exposure where we put a piece of candy on the ground and then eat the candy. And their response is, well, that's gross. Anybody would think that's gross. And I'll say, yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's gross too, but what do you think the difference is? And they'll think about it. And, and I'll end up saying, well, the difference is that I definitely think it's gross, but me eating this piece of candy does not, because I don't struggle with contamination OCD, debilitate me or, or make me feel like something terrible is going to happen versus for you. This, this one exposure can give you back freedom in so many other aspects of life. Because you, if you can do this, like when you're ready on your hierarchy, of course, then you've unlocked that freedom and it's not your OCD making the choice not to eat it. It's you because it's just gross instead of something terrible is going to happen, or this is going to harm me in some type of way. Yeah. I love that example. And you can even use that conversely, like, you know, everybody who's an athlete works out. And so of course I'm going to work out, but your typical athlete, they can skip a day. You know, if you said you have to skip a day and they're like, okay, I'll make it up tomorrow or okay, I'll just do it tomorrow. But when it's OCD who's controlling it, there's panic and there's concern. And right. that, there's that distress that shows up that wouldn't be just like you think, ew, yeah, it's gross, but like I'm going to put it in my mouth and then I'm not going to think about it tomorrow. And you're going to carry this the whole time because OCD is going to be really loud. So yeah, I like the distinction. Yeah, I like the, the what you just said. You're going to be carrying it the whole time. You know, it's more of an OCD thing if you're you're worried about the fact that because you maybe felt sick today, you decided to skip practice. And if you're thinking about that a week later, then that is not a healthy response that an athlete would have that wasn't struggling with OCD. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk, I want to pivot and I want to talk about anxiety in sports because I think it's a little bit different. It's a lot of bit different actually. And then I want to talk about different ways to work through these things. So definitely with OCD, you know, ERP exposure with response prevention. If you don't know what that is, I have episodes on it, or you can Google it, but you can go to the search button on my website and just type in ERP and you'll find it. But let's talk about anxiety because I feel like these are cousins. I always say, I always say that, you know, they're cousins, but they're, they also are different. So how do you see anxiety showing up? Because anxious Annie is really not about OCD. It's about an anxious kid. Who's very worried about her performance. So can you talk about how anxiety shows up with sports? Definitely. So we, we look at anxiety as more of, of this general worry. Um, I mean, you can definitely have the what if thoughts with general anxiety of what if this happens or what if that happens? And it just kind of sends you into this plummeting rapid pull of, of worry. And when athletes are struggling with anxiety, a number of things, it can it look differently, right? So some athletes might have a really upset stomach, not to be able to eat anything before competition because they're just overly thinking about all these components that make them afraid. And I I found actually, there was a time in my life where a coach would promote 
picturing the, like the layout of a race. I dreaded that day. It would be the day before race. We would all close our eyes and, and he would say, okay, at this point in the race, you're going to do, think of what you're going to do. You're going to lengthen your strides. You're going to pick it up here. But that completely exasperated my symptoms because I, I would think of all of the negative what ifs, if that were to happen. And so if these catastrophic thoughts are coming up for you around your competition, or remember, sometimes our brains say, nope, can't handle that. So these catastrophic thoughts will come up about something completely unrelated to your competition. That still has a huge impact on you and your ability to perform. And I think overall, just general anxiety can kind of exhaust you before you even have the time to compete. I don't know if anyone listening here has ever experienced this, but I, I hear this a lot of, well, I just worried and worried and worried so much that I had to go to sleep, right? Like, mm-hmm. yeah, my fuel source is in the brain. And so I think that can happen a lot, just over, over evaluating, over analyzing. And so getting in the present moment and thinking more about, okay, this competition is tomorrow and I've done everything I can for tomorrow, but right now I need to focus on what I need to do today. And and today I know that I need to prepare my lunch. So I'm going to prepare my lunch. And, And I think the other tricky part with that is some athletes can and do prosper when it comes to um, picturing their competition the day before, or um, when a coach is hard on them and says, okay, make sure you think of all the plays tonight before you go to bed. Whereas other athletes need to respond to something differently. And, and like, they have this internal drive already where they've already been doing that for a long time and they actually need to do the exact opposite. So that component of, of coaches knowing their athletes is also vital. Yeah, that's a good point because they might be trying to do something that isn't really going to be fruitful for that athlete. So you're bringing up some really good things that I've heard a lot in my practice, kids feeling nauseous and sick before they go kids really liking a sport. Then, you know, when it comes to game time or performing or the competitive aspect of it, they crumble. And so they love it because I'm, you know, I am a big fan of parents not forcing their kids to do sports, you know, when the kid doesn't love it. Cause a lot of times I'll get questions like Natasha, you know, he, he really, you know, he feels sick before every basketball game, or he feels, she feels really nervous before she goes to dance and she says she doesn't want to do it and she doesn't love it, you know, and, but, you know, we told her she has to stick with it and that's different. You know, I feel like she's not loving it and it's really spiking her anxiety. You know, how about just to have her not do it? But a lot of the times the kids love it. They're good at it and they want to do it, but it's that component of feeling nauseous, throwing up, having a coach yell at them, having that firm voice. You're hitting on all the things I often hear with anxiety. So what, what can someone do when they, they want to do this sport, they love the sport, but their anxiety is really getting the best of them. So sometimes I think there can be this like somatic component that they're afraid of, or just the, these feelings and sensations they're getting from the nerves. Like if a young athlete is about to go on the volleyball court and their legs are shaky and um, they almost have that jelly like feeling because of how nervous they are, that feeling can completely terrify them. Right. They, they can say, Oh my gosh, I never want to feel that again. I don't want to go on the court anymore. I've and it only happens at games. So I only want to go to practice. And so if that athlete actually loves volleyball, then we would want to do some exposures around that of passing a volleyball around or, or shaking our legs a whole bunch before we, we go out and then we, we pass the ball and just little by little work up this hierarchy of teaching them that this is a feeling that you're having, but, but you can also continue to play despite that and, and play well. And then 
eventually they won't be as hyper-focused on the feeling and more focused on the game and be able to love it again, hopefully, even the game, not just the practices. But exposure therapy is one component. Another component I think would be to, I just find for a lot of these athletes, taking some of the pressure off of them to, to just remind them that, Hey, you know, you just go out there and do your best. And it's like the number one goal is to have fun. And I know it makes me sound like I'm a fan of like, everybody wins a trophy kind of (laughs) method. That's not the case at all. I just think we have to understand that some of these kiddos that are going out there and feeling this heightened anxiety are already wanting to do above and beyond, right? Like they're already wanting to go out there and drive. And so if you can remind them, Hey, have fun kids that are wired in that way, or their brains are wired in that way. I don't think that means they're going to back down or to like not try their hardest. That's naturally ingrained in them. Yeah. And, and I think sometimes coaches, even some parents don't get that. They feel like, you know, tough love or really like pushing people is, is going to be helpful. And, and like you had said, that can be very helpful for some people, but anxious people tend to be their own worst enemies and they already have that internal dialogue. And so having that external pressure definitely can ramp up the anxiety. I like that you talked about too, about like feeling those jelly legs or that, you know, your heart racing and one doing exposure. So how can I get this feeling more often? And it doesn't even have to be like, I think at a game, it's like, I also feel that when I have to do this, then do that more often. So you can learn how to navigate through those feelings and accept them. Yep. I'm having jelly legs because this is what I do, you know, and I'm still going to focus on the ball. So yeah, I'm, I'm having jelly legs and I still just made a three point shot on the basketball court when I was practicing. Wow. Maybe I really like, maybe it is okay. Maybe I can just giving them that confidence to know that they can work through it is important. Yeah. Cause then it, you know, eventually goes away, but I think when you f- hyper-focus on it, I know I do like with public speaking, it used to be a nightmare for me. I know it's a little ironic, but I remember one time I had a public, I thought I was going to go and speak to 30 people. And I walked in and they're like, oh, it's in the ballroom. And I'm like, what? why is it in the ballroom? And it was like, the entire ballroom was filled with people. And they're like, oh, and she's next. And I remember like wanting to go to the back door, but then I realized <laughs> I had signed in because I was legitimately going to leave. Like, I'm like, nope, not going to happen. And then I remembered I had signed in with the secretary. I'm like, oh my gosh, I have oh, no, I'm here. And my legs were shaking and my throat got dry and my heart was racing. And I had to like, just in that moment, be like, either you're going to throw up on stage. And it was like a group of, it was like the entire school district of school counselors. Like, it was like, that's the audience I was talking to. So yeah. And I just accepted. I was like, yep, you have a dry mouth and you have like stomach ache. And like, ironically, you're talking about this. Like that was the topic. And so Wow. Human. <laughs> I know I was human. I even, I just used it. I was like, yeah, I'm feeling really nauseous right now. Like it's not my thing. Yeah. Well, I have, I have a similar story that happened recently. So there's this Christian running camp that I went to when I was in college, it's for distance uh, collegiate athletes and it's in Mammoth Lakes, California. So it's really great altitude training and campers will go for a week to two weeks. And it's wonderful, beautiful place to run while they're also getting that component of altitude to help with their training. And ever since I graduated from college, I've, I've been going up and being a camp counselor while I'm there, actually got engaged there and just oh, a hard place. And we all get so close so quickly. And so we become like a family. And this past summer at camp, one of the counselors that I just met this year, I said, you know, you're, you're like a brother to me. You, we just like gotten close and we joke and we prank. And he said, well, yeah, you actually remind me of my sister back home. And I said, Oh, how so? And he goes, well, you're very outspoken. And I was like, 
I'm, no, I'm not. I'm not outspoken. And I, I just was like listing all these reasons why I didn't think I was outspoken. But after he pointed that out, the rest of camp, anytime I would say something, I would just, my jaw would drop and I'd say, oh my gosh, you're right. I am outspoken. And so now I notice it all the time just because he pointed it out to me, but I am definitely 100% outspoken and I'm owning it now when I had no idea before. Isn't that funny how, like when someone highlights that, you know, then we can really own it or we recognize it within ourselves. I love that. And I think sometimes, you know, going back to our topic too, I feel like sometimes people can think I can't be like pro athlete or I can't be this like amazing athlete and have anxiety or have OCD, you know, like, like me feeling having shaky legs and me throwing up before a game, it's, it's weakness. And there's so much about like being weak in athletics. Like it's not okay. It's not accepted. And I wonder what the reframe can be for that too. You know, that you're feeling anxious. Yeah. You make a really good point. Uh, so one of the research highlights is that athletes don't receive evidence-based care for a, a lot of different reasons when, because there's a lot of athletes that, that don't until it, it it gets too bad. Um, but one of them is this fear that they're not going to be perceived as resilient, or there is a lot of stigma around athletes being invincible or kind of celebritized. And, and so they feel like they, they can't turn to getting that help. And that's why I think it's so important doing things like what we're doing now, speaking out about it. And even this the Olympics, a lot of press has come out about athletes talking about their mental health. And so we're just normalizing it now, um, to give them the opportunity to seek that mental health support and, and like reminding everyone else. You know, they, yeah. They, a lot of these athletes that are really good, they are celebrities, but even celebrities are still human. Even celebrities still have their struggles. Um, yeah. and like the fact that they're working on it, that's, what's brave not the fact that there's nothing wrong at all, which is impossible. (laughs) Yeah. Which is so normalizing. And I think in other areas, you know, you have musicians, you have a lot of actors coming out saying, I have anxiety or I have OCD and starting to become more normal. Child Mind Institute does like kind of their campaign where there's famous people talking, but you don't see too many athletes. Like it's almost like it was still taboo for athletes. So I think it is amazing to see, you know, in the Olympics that we're having, people being vocal about that. Like they're the top of the top, the cream of the crop, and they are struggling. And that's what makes them resilient. It's the struggle. I think that it builds the tenacity. Yeah. And I love seeing that where the changes is is transforming to that because it Mm -hmm. definitely used to be that way. And we still have a long way to go with it, but yeah, I 100% agree with you. Yeah. It's steady progress. And I love that you're doing research on this too. Like that's phenomenal doesn't seem like there's a lot of research. I mean, I don't know, but it doesn't seem like there's a lot of research on this topic. Yeah, there there definitely is a gap in the research. And so that is my my goal to pour in and learn as much as I can about it. It's such a crazy, like important topic. And it's really not, it's not well explored. So we do need people who are like you, who are like, that's their niche. And they're going to provide some research and some support that way. Right. I think some of the research is showing too, that athletes are actually vulnerable. Like that we, of course, they're tough for a lot of different reasons when it comes to competition, but they're also vulnerable because they're balancing athletics in everyday life. They're balancing these stigmatizing um, reputations that they're supposed to uphold. And there's a lot of pressure on that. They're, they're balancing, trying to find time to, um, if they are in treatment, get treatment, the cost of treatment, unless you know, you're, you're the cream of the crop, best athlete out there. You, you don't 
get fully financed for, for competition. And, and so there's a lot of other things that they're navigating through that make it really tough for them. And so of course they're going to probably be struggling with anxiety, depression, which are two common things that come across with competitive elite level athletes. Yeah. And knowing that that's normal, knowing that that does happen, you know, that you're not alone is huge. So I have two questions. One is, so where, where can people go from here? And then I want to talk to you about parents. I have a couple of questions for parents as well, who are raising kids like this, but if someone's listening to this and they're like, I struggle with this, where should I go next? What should I do? What would be your suggestion? If uh, an individual is struggling with anxiety and competition, cognitive behavioral therapy absolutely can help get them in the right direction. Um, so, you know, going to ICDF and looking at the website there, or even just educating themselves a little bit on, on their own symptoms so that they feel more confident to reach out to a, a local provider. And I think the other good component about it is that a lot of um, clinicians are meeting with people virtually now. And so if they do, if they are juggling a lot, if, if they're in college athletics, like I don't think that that should be an excuse not to take care of your mental health. And so even speaking to the school counselor about clinicians and, and asking them if your symptoms are more towards this OCD component, or if you feel like you're just struggling with generalized anxiety, asking the clinician to find a CBT clinician for them. And of course, if it's OCD, CBT with exposure response prevention would be really important. Yeah. And I was going to bring that up because I think, you know, a lot of people who are like very serious, they'll go see a sports psychologist. I mean, that's become a very big feel, but I don't know. And I, you know, I might be ignorant, but I, I would doubt that most sports psychologists would know ERP or how to spot OCD in the way that they should. And so I think that could be a slippery slope too, is if you are doing compulsive behavior, like Kelly was talking about, like tapping or doing compulsions that are beyond anxiety, like just beyond the feeling of nervousness or beyond ruminating, you might want to be cautious about going to, I mean, I don't know, a sports yeah, psychologist. You're right. So my, my best friend is a, a, one of my best friends is a sports psychologist and she competed in the Olympics in the steeplechase. And wow. so she's got a lot of knowledge on um, athletic performance and the mental health game. We can case conceptualized together and navigate through things, but she absolutely will refer out if it's a mental health struggle that she's noticing. And because she's a friend of mine and I am well-versed in the OCD world, she knows about OCD, but she would be the first one to say, like, if she didn't know me that she would have no idea because she specializes in something else and she's great at it, but hers is all based around performance strategies and performance enhancement. Whereas mental health clinicians would, would focus more on uh, mental illness. And so yeah, sports psychology for anxiety-related disorders is, is not the route to take. And a good sports psychologist hopefully could point you in the right direction, but they're they're going to be working on performance enhancement. So you're spot on. That's interesting. But you're actually saying something I didn't realize because I was just more like, you know, CBT is not ERP and most CBT therapists don't do ERP. And so people get confused about that. But I would have actually thought that an anxious person who's anxious about sports should or could go to a sports psychologist but it sounds like I didn't know that they only worked on like performance enhancement. 
Well, I think, you know, in mental toughness. So like if an athlete is struggling with motivation or or things like that, then a sports psychologist could definitely help. And maybe if an athlete is feeling like some type of anxiety due to lack of confidence, I think a sports psychologist could help with that too. But if they're experiencing symptoms of like true panic or an anxiety related disorder, that's when you would want to seek a mental health one. Well, and that's a really good differentiation. So if you have like OCD, for sure, you want to see an OCD specialist that always trumps whatever theme or issue you're having. In my opinion, like if you can find an OCD specialist who, I mean, you're like, you're like a rainbow unicorn, <laughs> because like, you know, if someone has OCD and, you know, to see you would be amazing that you're not going to find Callie everywhere. Like that's, that's just not going to happen, you know, because it's hard to find an OCD therapist in and of itself, but to find one that maybe specializes any kind of sports OCD type of relationship, it's, it's slim to none. It's actually just probably none 0.009%, but you do want to see someone who understands OCD. And I think if you have an anxiety disorder, like you're saying, you know, you're having panic attacks and you're having stuff, then you're probably going to want to see someone who's really skilled at dealing with that too. So that's a good point. Okay. So treatment is an option. Getting to know themselves is an option. Anything else in that realm? I also highly encourage support groups. It's really important to know that you're not alone. And so if you can find a local support group to tag into and really prove that to yourself, because we all know it and and anyone can tell you that, but until you see yourself that there's other people walking on this journey with you, I think it, it can be beneficial. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So one last question before we wrap up. So for the parents that are listening, because this will go out on my YouTube channel too, so people will be listening directly for themselves. But I get this question a lot where they say, you know, he really likes this activity or he really likes this, or she really likes this, but she doesn't want to do it because of anxiety. How can a parent help their child with this? Yeah, we run into it a lot. So if it is something that the child loves, but they, they find that it's really scary for them to be able to compete at this point. I think the reality of it is, is if there is an underlying anxiety disorder, then the next thing that they love, this anxiety could creep up again. Right. And so then they'd avoid that next level of their life or or the next. And I've seen it happen in, in young athletes that the family member will take them out of gymnastics, but then into singing lessons and the same problem is happening again. And so if the kid can vocalize, no, this is something that I, I love, but I just, it's not worth it for me. Um, in any, if they can vocalize that in any shape or form, then it's important to, to get them into some type of exposure response prevention, I would say to, to help them over come this fear or not really overcome, right? Like the fear, if you're diagnosed is going to be there, but to be in control of it instead of the fear being in control over them. And sometimes, especially with the really young kiddos, they don't know, like they don't know why their stomach is hurting. They don't know uh, why they're feeling as anxious as they are. And so a parent could ask them, well, do you want to do this? And their, their answer might be that they don't know. So I still think in those instances, it's important to, instead of immediately pulling them out of the sport, to give them some of those tools and some therapy so that they can work through that and see if this is something that they do want to invest in for the longer term. But there's also kids out there that parents are pushing them to do something because they see talent in the kid. And the kid just says, this is just not something that I love. And I think it's important to respect that as well. I agree. You know, I think you have to first assess, you know, is this something my child really loves that they love? Cause you will hear parents say, but he's so good at it. And it's like, yeah, but this is kind of his journey. <laughs> you know, it's like his life. 
So, you know, they're like, just wasted talent. And it's like, yeah, but it's not your life. So I, I do feel a struggle, but I think it's important for us to like give our kids that independence, but you're right. If it's an anxiety disorder or if it's OCD, it's packing its bag and it's following you for the next thing. And the next thing, you know, avoidance is the food of anxiety and OCD. And so I like your example of, you know, then you sign up for singing lessons and boom, same exact issue. So I think it's this like tightrope of, you know, if you drag them to the game and you're like, you're going to run anyway, you're going to, you know, you're going to compete and you're going to do track. I think you might hit a wall, but you know, can you come and sit down and can you watch and support your team, you know, get into some therapy and like work on it would be really helpful. Yeah. That gets us into the topic of flood, like flooding your child, right? If the child is at the point where they feel like they're going to throw up before a race and you say, oh no, we're, we're going to race anyways. Well, I, I think remembering, okay, that that's not what an OCD clinician would do with the child. They would slowly ease them back into this because my fear is if you throw this kiddo to the wolves and say, you're going to race and they're having like panic attacks, throwing up before, then they're, they're probably going to be traumatized for the future of, of racing. Whereas a clinician would ease them back into it so that it was a more pleasant experience and that they, they probably have a, a better chance of liking this sport anyways, which brings me to one more thing I wanted to say about it is that let's say a kid doesn't know if they like a sport or not, and they're just feeling a lot of anxiety around it. If they get treatment and they're feeling much better and confident, then they should be able to vocalize. I do like the sport and I don't like this, or I don't like the sport because the anxiety is removed. But when the anxiety is so heightened, we lose insight. And not only do adults lose insight, kids do too. And so we have to help them bring that down so that they can see clearly and make the choice for themselves. And if the choice is that they don't want to do it and their anxiety is under control, then we're kind of back in that boat of let's let it be their choice. (laughs) Yeah, I agree. And I think it's a good point, you know, that you really don't have the clarity until you, you get that treatment or you work on it, whether you're working on it at home or you get the treatment and you reduce it. And then you can really tell what is genuinely something that you love or you don't love. So maybe you have an anxious little kid. Anxious Annie is so cute and so perfect and so specific. I mean, I thought I was like, when I was reading it, I got it on Kindle, so I don't have a hard copy to show you, but you have a hard copy. See, super cute. What age range would you say this is for? I would say probably three to six age range, but the message is good for everyone overall. (laughs) Well, it's such a good message that when I was reading it, I was like, oh my gosh, why didn't she write one for older kids? (laughs) I mean, it's perfect for little kids because- you're not going to find a children's book that is so specific to those feelings that so many of our kids have. Like when my daughter was having a hard time with swim class, so not even athletics, but she would throw up, be in the bathroom. She was like four or five and could not like, it took me a while to connect the dots, even though I do this for a living. Cause I thought she has celiac and stuff, but she didn't at the time Well, she wasn't diagnosed. I'm going on a tangent, but I was just like, what is the deal? Why does she have like diarrhea every time we go to swim class? And it was performance anxiety. And if I had this book, I could have read that to her. You know, it just is words to her feelings that that's so important to connect those. Yeah, definitely. It's hard when, when they're not able to vocalize what's going on, but when they do, it can give them something to say, oh yeah, this is that thing that's happening again and give them a little bit more insight on how to handle it. Yeah. So I would, I would definitely recommend anxious Annie for any kid who is dealing with anxiety. And even if they're not into sports, it's so appropriate for perfectionism or for, you know, wanting to do your best and feeling so anxious and shutting down. And I mean, I think proactively, I mean, I made my kids read, I didn't make them, but we did a lot of bibliotherapy where we like, we read lots of books on lots of different topics about how anxiety can show up 
so that they have a vocabulary and they have emotional intelligence to say, oh, I remember I read Anxious Annie and now I'm like eight and I'm feeling that way. And I can relate this. I can connect it. So I do feel like proactively, if my child had anxiety or even an anxious disposition, this is on my bookshelf to read and to normalize it before it even pops up. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's a a really good way to put it. And yeah, Anxious Annie is available on Amazon, Barnes and Noble online and Target online and it's by Callie Werner. And I will leave a link in the show notes. And so people can just click on it and find the book. So thanks for writing that. And thanks for coming on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was great. I'm really passionate about this stuff and could talk about it all day. So thank you for having me. Good topic. Well, I hope that you found that helpful. I always really enjoy talking to people who are just full of knowledge and have such passion to spread really good information. So check out her book, Anxious Annie. I will leave a link in the show notes and you can definitely find it yourself on Amazon. And I hope that you have found this episode and all my episodes helpful. And if you are enjoying it, please don't forget to hit a star or whatever you do, wherever you're consuming podcasts to rate the show. Believe it or not, that actually really does help a podcast. And if you have a few extra minutes and you can leave a review, I greatly appreciate it. And to show my appreciation, I always like to leave the show, if I remember, reading one of them. So I want to thank you, Sylvia, who wrote, I started to listen to this podcast after reading Natasha's book a few years ago when my daughter was three years old. I keep returning to it when I need help or advice on certain topics, and I always find something that helps me and cheers me up. Well, thank you all the way from Great Britain. I appreciate that. And maybe if you have something nice to say, I'll be reading your review next time. So I I love that I can be on your journey with you. I love that my work and my resources are relevant for toddlers all the way up to young adults. And I have people who follow my work or who are in my AT parenting community and they are raising, you know, teens and young adults. And I have people in my community who are raising two and three-year-olds. And the cool thing is everybody can benefit because it's a journey and there are different things that are happening at different developmental stages. And I got you covered because I'm raising three little people who came out of the womb anxious and some with OCD, not totally out of the womb, but genetically out of the womb. And now one is 17 and the other two are getting older at nine, almost 12. No, no, no. That would be pretty freaky. Nine. She's almost 12. She's just going to skip a couple of years. I have an almost 10 year old and an almost 12 year old. Well, I hope that you find a sparkle in everything you do, and I'll talk to you again next Tuesday. Take care. Thank you for listening to the AT Parenting Survival Podcast. To get additional support raising a child with anxiety or OCD, visit Natasha's online school of on-demand classes at atparentingsurvivalschool.com. 